Thank you, music team, for uh, leading us this morning. I think today is a Kleenex day. <laughs> yeah, it is good to be together, church. Uh, my name is Garth Coop. I'm one of the pastors here at Steinbeck EMC. And uh, boy, as I'm just listening to the different pieces and parts of, of the service so far, uh, I'm just making little you know, notes uh, in my manuscript about how it all puts together and oh my goodness that fits with that and it is incredible to see some of the stuff going on behind the scenes here that obviously is not orchestrated by uh, by us but uh, God uh, who is so much bigger is orche- orchestrating this uh, again this morning um, if I said today's message was uh, was going to be a fire and brimstone message I wonder what that would do to your thought life. Uh, perhaps uh, if you're younger, uh, you know, younger people in our audience and listening at home, uh, there would be no reaction. They wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Um, on the other hand, maybe they would hear the words fire and brimstone and they would think that I'm referring to some pyrotechnics on stage and they would go, this is going to be so cool. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It it's not going to happen uh, today, okay? We won't make any promises about the future. Um, if you're a little bit older, uh, perhaps you are thinking, yes, finally, a fire and brimstone message. And then you'd be going, oh man, I wish I would have known. Because I have some family and friends who need to be here to hear this. Yeah. Still others, perhaps... We hear those words, fire and brimstone, and we recoil. (laughs) And we're going, oh boy, that takes me back to when I was a little bit younger. Uh, And we remember what it was like when we were younger, or or maybe we've seen it in the movies or in, in TV shows, and when we think of a fire and brimstone message, we think of an angry preacher who's going to pound the pulpit, and he's going to be yelling at us, and he's going to be telling us that God is mad at me again because of all the sin in my life, and, uh, and on and on. Um, but in those uh, visions, uh, uh, those memories that we have of a fire and brimstone message, uh, as I look back on that, boy, it was hard to maybe remember them ever talking about God's love. Not, not often was there a reference to God's grace. Um, maybe uh, Jesus' name was very seldom mentioned. And so the preacher would often speak about and, and speak against sin, uh, but only in regard to punishment. Um, in addition to this, there was nothing that was added maybe that would help us uh, to change uh, other than guilt and fear, which I am learning in my own life. Uh, guilt and fear are not very effective in uh, having change happen in my life. At least, uh, they're not very effective in having lasting change um, Where do we get this narrative from? Uh, And what would Jesus say to that narrative? Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, wrote this. The the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves 
toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. In other words, our thoughts about God must line up with what Jesus said or what Jesus thought or we will be starting in the wrong direction. Uh, Sort of like the children's feature here where the train was going off the track, right? And so if our train of thought is going off the wrong track, our life with God will be negatively affected. Uh, What I am trying to do, what I am attempting to do and have done in the last couple messages that I've preached and and also in the coming uh, weeks when I will be preaching, is I want to address some of these narratives that hold us back from drawing closer to God. And replace them with the narratives that we find in Jesus' teaching and throughout the rest of the scripture. I give lots of credit to James Brian Smith, pastor, uh, author, and, uh, and teacher, uh, in his book, The Good and Beautiful God. And I would recommend that you would pick it up. Uh, but his book has been very challenging, very encouraging to me, and has been very influential in my thoughts over the years. Because, you see, this narrative of an angry God, unfortunately, is not uncommon. And if we simplify that narrative, what it really boils down to, uh, this dominant narrative that says we need to earn God's favor. And it looks maybe something like this. That God's love and his forgiveness are earned by our good performance. That God will love me and he'll forgive me if I do good or at least if I avoid bad. In other words, this false narrative believes that God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness must be earned by living the right way. And what God wants most for us is not to sin and instead to do good. Now, let me pause and slow this down so that I don't get too much fan mail. Okay? Uh, that's a quote from Gary, fan mail. Right? Okay, this narrative is rooted as often false narratives are in half-truth. Okay? It is true that God does not want us to sin and that God does want us to do good. But it is because sin harms us and it hurts our relationship with Him. And He does want us to do good instead of bad because when we do good, it brings healing to us and to those who are receiving our good our goodness, and our kind acts. The narrative of earning favor is very deeply rooted in our world. Maybe from an early age, we learn from our parents' love that it is dependent upon our good behavior. Or our school grades are are given because of our performance. That effectiveness or um, affection is received because of my attractiveness or that rejection and loneliness and isolation are the consequences of some failure in my life. And when this is played out over and over in our lives, how people treat us based upon our looks, how we act, how we perform, it is very difficult not to project that onto God. And to say, ah, if this is how other people are treating me, this must be how God treats me as well. And if I fall short of meeting the standards of my parents and my teachers and my coaches and my friends, then how much more a God who knows and sees everything I do 
who has even higher standards than my parents and my teachers and my coaches and my friends. How much more I must be a disappointment to him. And you see what happens with that? Guilt, fear, shame, and the desire for acceptance, security, and significance become the primary motivators in my performance, in our performance-based culture. But it's not just something that we see in our culture. It can also be used or in, in Scripture or misused when we read the Bible. For example, maybe we read about the Israelites who are punished and then they're sent into exile by Yahweh for their disobedience. Or we read about David's child who who is born out of wedlock and, and this child dies presumably because it was conceived in the act of adultery. But there is a bigger story going on here. A bigger story that needs to guide our understanding of what's happening here. The Israelites were chosen by Yahweh for no apparent reason and were delivered from the bondage and into the land of milk and honey despite having done nothing to deserve it. David's act of adultery and murder should have resulted in his own death. But instead, Danny, you pointed out to this before, but instead we read about David who was a man after God's own heart. To say that sin has its consequences is much different than saying that because of our sin, God entirely rejects us. Okay? To say that sin has its consequences is much different than saying that because of our sin, God entirely rejects us. And so the bigger story from the biblical narrative is a story of grace and God's generosity. Oh, it would be maybe similar to watching a hockey game and watching one shift and then judging the whole game based upon that one shift. You can see how if we take just one isolated story or we take one isolated verse in Scripture and we build our doctrine about who God is on that one verse, our understanding will be very limited and very distorted. And so we learn in Bible interpretation that isolated passages must not be placed above the larger biblical story. The larger story, the dominant storyline of the Bible is a story of unearned grace. Of a God whose love is not spoiled by human sinfulness, but a God whose love for humanity is so great that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The dominant storyline of the scriptures is a story of a God who loves humanity so much that he demonstrates his love for this, for us in this, and that he sent his only son to die for us. The big story of grace and generosity, the persistent love of our heavenly father reaches its climax in the Easter season, what we have just come through last week. Right? God becoming human, the death and the resurrection of God on behalf of a rebellious world, and we celebrated that when we celebrated Good Friday, and then we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. And therefore, we interpret the whole of Scripture and each of its parts in light of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, 
the preexistent and eternal Son of God knows who God is. He knows the nature and the meaning of life. Jesus' narratives teach us truth. He himself is the truth. And so the key for us is to adopt Jesus' narratives for our own life, lives. What did Jesus say about God? Listen to this story found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Jesus said this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again at about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and he found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came, who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous. Jesus' story would have resonated with his crowd that day. You see, unemployment in Jesus' day would have been very high, and each day these, these men would go to the fields to find work. But if they failed to get hired, they would go to the marketplace and hope that perhaps during the day someone else would come along and they would still get a chance to go to work. In Jesus' parable, he, the vineyard owner hires a group of men early in the morning around 6 a.m. And these early workers, they agreed to work for a typical day's wages. And yet there's so much work to be done that Jesus recognizes, or that the landowner recognizes, ah, there's still more work to do, and I need more workers. And so he goes and he gets some more people to come at around 9 a.m., and still there is more work. And so he goes again at noon and again at three o'clock in the afternoon and then again at five o'clock in the evening or early evening. And at the end of the day, the landowner calls these workers in. Some of them have worked 12 hours. Some of them only three or six or nine. The ones hired at the end of the day, at the 11th hour, worked one hour. 
And here's the shocking part, that they all receive the same amount on their paycheck. They all receive a typical day's wage. Oh, and this seems very unfair to the guys who are hired first. And so they start complaining, and why do these guys who have only worked one hour, why do these guys get the same amount of, uh, of wages that we do? And the landowner asks them these revealing questions. First of all, he says, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. And then he says this. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? In case you're wondering, no. It is not against the law for him to do whatever he wants with his money. And then the landowner asks, should you be jealous because I am generous? The workers who were hired last received the full day's wages on the basis of the landowner's generosity. The landowner represents God. And in this detail lies the difference between two worlds, the world of law and the world of the gospel, the world of works and the world of grace. Do we dare grumble against God's generosity? You see, that's the core message that Jesus was proclaiming. That's the core message of the gospel. That's what God is like. God is all good. God is all generous. And if this was the only story that we knew about God, I wonder what we'd be thinking about God. Would we think that he is generous to a fault? Would we wonder if his generosity is going to be taken advantage of? Would we think that people are going to misuse his generosity? Yeah, perhaps. But perhaps there's something else. Because as I read this story of the landowner's generosity, what it leads me to understand more about God is that God is not like anything we see in this world. The world says, I have to work for my acceptance, that I have to work for my security, that I have to work for my significance. But in Jesus' parable, I am amazed by the grace and the generosity of God. The God that Jesus reveals is so opposite to the way that we are so often wired to think. Jesus shows us a God who does not demand but gives. A God who does not tear down but builds up. A God who does not hurt but heals. A God who does not condemn but forgives. The world teaches us that we have to earn what we get. And we often project that onto God. But the God that Jesus shows us is a God who is absolutely generous. Receiving what we don't deserve and what we can't earn. You see, our God is relentlessly generous. His generosity never runs out. Everything that we have is a gift. Life, breath, that's a gift. 
The seasons we go through in life are a gift. Family and friends, it's a gift. We will never be in a place where we will say to God, God, you owe me on this one. We will never be in a place where we say, God, I deserve this. There is nothing that we have earned. And yet God continues to give because he is not interested necessarily in what we can do for him. He is interested in something far more, something bigger than that, something much better than our good works. What does God want from you? What does God want from me? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said this. We find this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does God want from you? I believe that Jesus would say to us, God wants you to know him and to love him. This in no way means that God is not serious about sin. This in no way means that God doesn't care about sin or that God thinks it's no big deal to sin. God thinks it is a big deal about sin. God hates the sin in our lives because it hurts his children and he loves his children very, very much. (laughs) You see, sin is a big deal. That's why we celebrated Easter last week, right? God takes our sin seriously. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again because sin is a big deal and he stepped into our situation and he did something about it. The Westminster Larger Catechism, written in 1648, opens with a question and an answer. The question is this, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is this, that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Do you believe that God wants you to enjoy Him I mean, what if that God is not mad at you? What if God were actually like the one that Jesus is describing in this parable? A God who delights in you regardless of how we look, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we have or have not done. I wonder if our response to that kind of love would be that in turn we would delight in him. That we would draw near to his love and thus fulfill the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because the more I understand the God that Jesus reveals, the more I am drawn to him. Fire and brimstone preaching that only speaks about punishment, that just wants to heap guilt and fear does not lead me to love God more, but only to fear him. And that does not produce the genuine change in our lives. But the narrative that God loves us, that God longs for us to love him in return, provides a real and lasting motivation. There's a few verses that come to mind when I think of this. Romans 5, 8, in the New Living Translation, reads like this, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
And in 1 John 4, 10 and 11, again in the New Living Translation, says this, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. You see, it is God's love that motivates us to love him and to love others in return. God first loved, and he has never stopped loving you. What God wants first and foremost is not improved moral behavior, but to love God because he first loved us. And our moral behavior will come, but it will come as we understand how much God loves us. Then our moral behavior changes. That's why it is so important that we get the story straight. That we get the right thoughts about God because it affects everything we do, right? The train on the track. Get your thoughts right about God and the rest will come around too. God is good. Worship team, come on up. God is loving. God is trustworthy. He is forgiving and he is powerful. Music team's gonna lead us in a song and I'm just gonna read some of these words because these are so powerful for us. That he is the comforter, the counselor, the prince of peace. He is the author and maker of everything. He is the defender, deliverer, the king of kings. He is helper (laughs) and healer. Savior and shelter through every storm. He is refuge, redeemer, and Lord of lords. He is provider, protector, the great I am. The alpha, omega, beginning and end. He is hope for the hopeless. He is rest for the weary. He is help for the hurting, mending the broken, bearing the burdens. He is a generous God. Do you know him, church? Let's sing it out together.